Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you continue to reveal yourself to us in such profound ways as we encounter your revealed word. And Father, I'm praying that as we encounter your word, that you would do as you promised and shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to the truth of your word. God, where there is need for encouragement, where we find encouragement, where there's need for conviction, may we find conviction, ultimately so that we may glorify you, which is our desire in all things. And as always, Father, may you increase and I decrease, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I hope you were in service today. What an incredible, incredible display of God's redemptive activity at work throughout the nations. And it's funny to me, I was listening to um, our, one of our missionaries talk about his experience in China and about how the Chinese were so willing to go to prison in order to communicate the gospel. And I could not help but think of the relation to the book of Philippians. Um, it's such an overwhelming thing to see people truly, truly giving their lives to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same ways that we see Paul and other apostles throughout Scripture. You know, it's very interesting for us today in an America that's very free and allows us to worship. Yes, there are cultural things that come against us as the church that, you know, try to inhibit our ability to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we just do not know persecution the way that many in this world do as a result of their faith in Christ. And so to see how the Lord is just transforming the people of China to the point where they're able to worship freely, they don't have to worry about going underground to worship, is just a tremendous thing. To see how God used communism, Dr. Rankin said, and in, in certainly in Russia, but now also in China, to raise up a people. My friends, do not miss the bigness and the awesomeness of our God who uses governments and socialists' agenda to bring about his glory. There's a trust in that, isn't there? There's a confidence in that. You know, we get very concerned when we hear things like socialism in America, right? We get very upset and concerned. At the end of the day, let us not forget that our root, our confidence, our victory in life is secure in Christ alone. And if we trust in the sovereignty of God, as we will see Paul trusting in the sovereignty of God today, then we must know that at the extent, at the, the exclusion of human frailty, I mean, there are certain things that we do that we should pay for, but generally, if there are things that are out of our control, we must trust that they are in his control and they work for his divine purposes. And so I just want you to have that truth behind you as we encounter uh, the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, to see Paul unfolding and outlining the greatness of our God. I've been doing a lot of reading, um, pursuing a Ph.D. finally, and uh, that requires a lot of reading. Uh, I think I have 23 books for a couple of classes to finish by January. It's a lot of reading. And I've just been really struck by one book in particular. It's called uh, Shepherds After My Own Heart, and it's uh, by Timothy Laniak. It's in a series of pastoral traditions and leadership in the Bible. And I've just been really struck by this idea of shepherding and how throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, we see this parallel of shepherding kind of put forth for the leadership of the church of God. 
And I can't help but associate shepherding with what Paul is doing in the book of Philippians. Just think for a second about the nature of shepherding, especially in the biblical times. That was kind of the one of the big occupations back then. Obviously, their economy was driven by agrarian means, and so crops and livestock and things of that nature were central to the economy of that day. And so many in that day were employed in shepherding activities, either their own flocks, taking care of their own flocks, or under shepherds of someone else's flocks, taking care of them. And I was reading in this book, and they were describing the the needs of the flock and how the shepherds had to be attuned to that. They had to have a, a balanced diet for their sheep, for their flocks. They had to know uh, where the, the greenery was to be able to take the sheep in order to graze. And they also had to know at which point the places they were grazing would become overgrazed. And they had to move them, sometimes several times a day. They had to know the landscape like the back of their hand. They had to know where water was to be able to feed or to let them drink whenever they were thirsty. They had to know the, the conditions of the climate. Some of the places outside the biblical territory of Israel and things of that nature, the, the outlaying areas have very temperamental temperatures. They can change in drastic ways. The shepherd had to be aware of all of these things. And, of course, he had to be aware of the, the different things that might try to come and, and tear apart the very sheep he was trying to protect. He was to be aware of all of these things. And it was said time and again that the condition of the flock was always a reflection of the condition of its shepherd. And I think about the idea of shepherding and how Paul is obviously implementing that type of idea as he is writing this epistle to the Philippian church. There's nothing terrible going on in Philippians at this time. It's not like the, the soap opera drama of Corinth or uh, the Judaizers in Galatians that he's writing to. There are little things. There are little things in the, in the church in Philippi, but there are always little things in even good churches because, listen, we're imperfect people, and imperfect people do dumb things. It always happens. There's always room for conflict, but it doesn't mean the church in Philippi was unhealthy. And yet Paul, in house imprisonment in Rome awaiting to appear to plead his case in prison because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, thinking possibly that his life could be coming to an end, is thinking about the church in Philippi. He loves the church in Philippi. There's a special relationship that Paul has with the church in Philippi. Philippi is the place where Paul founded his first church in Europe. First church, somewhere around 49 to 52 AD. Mostly Gentile believers here, which you know was one of the, the premier features of Paul's ministry. He was going to take the gospel beyond just the Jewish people to all people. There's a special place in his heart for the people in Philippi. Remember all the lessons that Paul learned while he was in Philippi. Remember the, the time he was in prison because he cast out a demon. And the people who owned this servant girl who was demonically possessed were afraid they were going to lose income because she was reading fortunes and things of that nature. And so he was imprisoned. And in the middle of that imprisonment, he and Silas are singing. And just think about this for a second. The nature of the prison system and this time is not like our prison system today. 
there were inner chambers, and the innermost of which was shielded from light and air. And think about the fact that there were no plumbing systems in that day. And so if you're the innermost prison, the central configuration of all of this, you have all of the human, what's a good word, waste, thank you, waste coming at you with no air getting out. You have, it's dark. There's no light in there. Beyond, they put you in stocks. They put you in stocks to the point where your, your joints and your hip pop out of socket. That's where they are. And yet, what do we find Paul doing in the midst of all this? What are he and Silas doing? They are praising the Lord. They are singing. An earthquake happens. And this jailer's afraid that he's going to lose his life because he loses these two prisoners. And yet Paul comes around and says, do not be afraid. We are still here. And he leads this man to the Lord. What an incredible lesson that Paul learned in Philippi. So Philippi is a very, very special place in his heart. And the church especially, it's noted in, in Mark's lesson that the, the Philippian church was a source of encouragement for Paul when he had no one else. When he's dealing with the Corinthians, And people are questioning his apostolic authority, his ability to to lead the church. They're questioning his motives. No one would come to Paul's defense, he says, but the Philippian church was there. He loves this church. And so as he's sitting in Rome in house imprisonment, he pens them a letter to encourage them. To encourage them to stand fast to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes to them in chapter 4, verse 1, Brothers, stand firm. An interesting challenge to this church, don't you think? A church that, again, did not have anything ridiculously wrong going on in it, and yet Paul writes to them to say, stand Firm. So what does he mean to stand firm? Well, I think there are two things that Paul is specifically writing to them about. Two different type of circumstances that Paul wants to challenge them in as they grow as a church, as they grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first thing he wants to remind them of is that they must stand firm in the midst of negative circumstances. And of course, Paul is the one to write about this. If anybody has experienced negative circumstances in his time in ministry, it is Paul. And certainly now, as you've heard, today is not the exception. Paul is in prison. And think about this for a second. Many of us kind of walk around with an entitled sense of God's owing us certain things. If we're faithful, if we walk faithfully at the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we do everything that God tells us to do, then God should honor us by blessing us. That we should have everything that we need. We should not be forced to be uncomfortable if we are faithful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul here, having been faithful to do exactly what God called him to do on the Damascus road, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to to spread it to the Gentile people, because of his very faithfulness, he finds himself imprisoned. And yet, what does he write to them about his state? Knowing that this church could be very discouraged, that the person who founded their church, who led them to faith in Jesus Christ, who discipled them, is sitting in prison, 
possibly about to lose his life. That's not a very encouraging thing. When you're being asked to follow him, can I follow Paul into imprisonment? Can I follow Paul even to death? Is that something I'm willing to do for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And yet, what does he say? Verses 12 to 18, beginning in chapter 1 of Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What an incredible reaction to his place. He's in prison and he's saying, guys, do not be discouraged by what is happening to me because God is using what is happening to me to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a different way to live. It's a way in which we view every single thing that happens to us as grace from God to know him more. Positive things, yes, but also negative things. Paul writes to the church in Colossians. And the same way that you received the gospel of Jesus Christ, so now walk in it. Chapter 3, verse 1. What does he mean by that? Listen, we as Baptists are fundamentally committed to the idea that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet somehow, sometimes we forget that that saving experience by grace through faith alone is the same way in which we walk in Christ and sanctification after we are saved. We are sanctified by grace in the same way that we are saved by grace. And that perspective requires us in the midst of even negative circumstances to remember that everything that happens to us, that is not a result of sinful actions on our part that we deserve consequences from, but are out of our control. God is sovereignly brought into our lives to know him more and to spread his gospel. Think about this. Jesus is walking down the road and him and the disciples see a man born blind. And the disciples ask him, teacher, What has this man done? Or what did his parents do to be born like this? Remember how Jesus answered him? Are the disciples in the book of John? He said, listen, this guy didn't do anything. His parents didn't do anything. He was born this way so that the power and glory of God could be displayed through him. What a profound statement that Jesus is saying. And Paul recognizes this in the midst of his imprisonment. God, what did I do wrong to be here? What did the the Christian church do wrong for me to be here? And the same words of Jesus speaking to his spirit, that's speaking to our spirit today. You didn't do anything wrong. You were in this place so the glory of God could be shown through you. And he is doing that. The imprisoned people around him are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ as they come and visit him in his home. He's proclaiming to the imperial guard that he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't steal anything. He's just simply following Jesus Christ. And people are coming to know the Lord as a result. I'm reminded of my best friend's father. It was Lewis Boyd. And he and I served on staff together with Stephen Trammell in Baton Rouge at Florida Boulevard Baptist Church. And Lewis was diagnosed with a terminal um, type of cancer, prostate cancer. And you know, you have those moments where you walk through. I mean, as a man of God, could not have been a more 
loving man, uh, devoted his whole life to serving the Lord. And yet here he is with a life-ending cancer. And you could, you could see where it would be justified for him to sit down in his bed and say, God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've given my life to you. I've served your church faithfully. I've discipled hundreds of students as a student minister for a long time. I've done all of these things. And yet, why am I, in my mid-50s, diagnosed with this terminal stage of cancer? He could have had a pity party like many of us do, right? And yet, Lewis chose to use his cancer to glorify God. Let me give you one example of how he did that. We were sitting in a staff meeting one day, and our administrator at the church's name was uh, Gerald Wheeler. Gerald comes in, he goes, guys, I had the worst hospital visit today. Now, many of you know that we as pastors have responsibilities, and we go and visit people in the hospital, and we do it on a rotation, and so is Gerald's day. And so he goes, and he visits this guy in the hospital, and he's dying of terminal cancer. He walks in the door, and he says, hey, I heard about you from a person in our church. I wanted to come and pray over you and, and share some words of encouragement, and the guy just started cursing him. Get the you know junk out of my room. I don't want anything to do with you or your God or your Jesus. You have no idea about what I'm going through, so don't pretend that you do. So Gerald comes back, and he tells us how discouraging this encounter in this hospital was. And Lewis says, I want to go talk to this guy. So Lewis goes back the next day. He walks in, same kind of reception. You have no idea what I'm going through. Get the bleepity bleep out of here. And Lewis says, I want to stop you right there. Because I also have terminal cancer. And I want to tell you about a God who has brought me through even the deepest, darkest of valleys. And my friends, he was able to lead that man to Christ. Now, I said I celebrate him. He's passed away years ago, but I celebrate him because he took what could have been a defeating moment in his life in the midst of negative circumstances, and he used it to glorify the Lord. And that's what Paul is writing to the Philippian church. Listen, there will come days where you will be in prison because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single person that follows Christ will experience negative circumstances because we live in a fallen world. And we are building a kingdom that is at odds, the kingdom of the flesh, that is at odds with the Lord. And there will be resistance. The question is, what do you do in the midst of those negative circumstances? Do you blame God? Or do you show the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that says, throw me in a furnace. God will redeem me. And even if he doesn't, I still would rather worship him. My friends, that's a different way to live. Where we see everything that happens to us as the grace of God to know him more. I wonder what you may be going through this morning. We had a lady collapse earlier today because of some health reasons in the back. She didn't plan on that today. What are you going through? What did you bring today to church? Have you been blaming the Lord for what's been happening in your life? Or have you taken a step back perhaps and said, okay, God, what are you trying to show me here? How can I know you more? as a result of what you are doing in my life, even in the midst of this negative circumstance. But certainly, 
We don't always need to stand firm in the midst of negative circumstances. We also need to stand firm in the midst of positive circumstances. And in some ways, this may be a more telling thing for us as Champion Forest Baptist Church. There's a lot of good stuff going on at Champion Forest Baptist Church, right? Hispanic ministry blowing up. It's amazing what the Lord is doing with our Spanish-speaking friends. And North Campus that is doing great things. And my friends, you heard this morning all the great things that we are being able to be a part of around the world. Last week, our students were able to share the gospel with thousands of people and 238 made decisions for Christ, either to recommit themselves to Jesus or for the first time. There's a lot of good stuff going on at Champion Forest Baptist Church. It would be very easy for us to sit back on what we have accomplished and pat ourselves on the back, wouldn't it? Look at what we've done. How great our faithfulness to the Lord is so faithful to us. Similar to what's going on in the Philippian church. There's very good things going on in the Philippian church. There's a little divisiveness between two ladies. I won't touch on that. But things are going really well. And Paul is writing to them to say, listen, you cannot let down your guard. Even in the midst of positive circumstances, you must, you must commit to do more. Look in chapter 2, verse 12 of Philippians. What does Paul write to the church? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, listen, you've been obedient. You've been obeying. But as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Things may be going great in Philippi, but it doesn't mean that things are going great everywhere. Because ultimately the gospel is about restoring all things, all people, all places. And so we have to keep that picture in mind. And Paul is challenging the Philippian church, do not rest on what you have already done. Recognize on all that there is to be done and keep moving forward. Because the second that you let down your guard is the second the enemy will come in and try to divide what God is doing. Anybody here go watch the Hunger Games this weekend? Some of you, okay, wow. Different crowd that I normally speak to, so just bear with me for a moment. Hunger Games, regardless of whether or not you think it's good to talk about children fighting each other for life and stability, I was thinking about Katniss, who's the main heroine in this novel, and these children are taken up from districts to go fight against each other, and only one survives, and she's able to to celebrate, this you can call that a celebration, by living above and beyond the people around her. There's one district that oversees all the other districts, and they oppress the other ones to remind them they should not rise up and revolt against them. And so she's in this arena with 23 other people fighting for their lives. And it's got to be very difficult, to say the least, right? Not only that, she's fighting against them. There's all these other things happening around her. And, you know, she could get really confident in the fact that, you know, four or five people are no longer playing in the game. But the second she puts down her weapon and takes a nap, there could be someone on the next side of her taking her life in order to win the game. She can't rest until it's all done. And I use that illustration purposely because I need to remind us that we are engaged in a war. We are in spiritual warfare. 
We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that are governing the air around us. And the second that you and I take our foot off the gas and we think that we have arrived is the second that the enemy will come up behind us and try to take us out. Be on guard, Paul says. Philippian church, do not rest in what God has already done through you. Continue to push forward, even in my absence. You may not have me much longer, but continue to stand firm. So what I want to do with our remaining time together is walk through three things that Paul challenges the early church to help them stand firm. So how do we stand firm for Jesus Christ? Number one, we remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I stand firm when we remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 of Philippians. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Sinkki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How do you overcome division in the church? Even small division like this? Rejoice. Rejoice. And what is the the cause of our rejoicing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I were created to find joy and satisfaction in God alone. And he created all this around us to point us to him. To find joy and satisfaction in him alone. And yet, you and I turn to the very things he created and begin to worship them as we should have worshipped God. We tried to find joy and satisfaction in created things instead of the creator, Romans 1 says. As a result, there was separation between us and God, a vacuum within us, death in us. We were children of wrath, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. We deserve judgment because we did not live as our Creator designed us to live. And yet, in the midst of our sinfulness, at our weakest moment, God, His abundant mercy, made us alive in Jesus Christ through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that now you and I, who once could not find ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction, the very place that God said it would always be, now can because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of what He did. We can look to God, the place of love in its infinite and perfect form, and find love infinitely and perfectly. We don't have to find it in anyone else or anything that we might try to put our hands around because God has opened a door for us to find it in Him. 
The peace of God that surpasses all understanding because he is peace infinitely and perfectly so. We can now find in him because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And my friends, that should be cause to rejoice. Rejoice, Paul says. Again, I say rejoice. Like I said earlier, it could have been very easy for Lewis to get down because of the cancer, and yet he chose to focus on good things, heavenly things, things worthy of our time and attention. I'm reminded of Beth. A lot of you saw Beth Mitchell's testimony last week. Powerful testimony. God has blessed her with a baby, but not before years of heartache. Miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. A baby who she thought was going to make it then died the week before she was supposed to deliver it. Had to deliver that baby stillborn. The whole process knowing, and yet she continued to lead us in worship. She continued to say that her God reigns. She didn't do anything to deserve all of that. But she placed her faith in the Lord. And now God has answered her prayers in a tremendous way because of her faithfulness, even in the midst of, of terrible negative circumstances. Why? Because she remembered the gospel of Jesus Christ. That her momentary affliction has nothing on the glory that will be revealed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that you're going through, stand firm. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus pursued you. He was the first missionary. He let the glory of heaven step into the mess of this earth to save you for the glory of God. That should help you stand firm. Secondly, not only that, we rejoice in God's ultimate provision in the midst of any circumstance. Look at verse 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Rejoice in God's ultimate provision in the midst of any circumstance. Listen, Paul... He's giving his life to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He could have been very discouraged that only one church was willing to partner with him. Thessalonica wasn't helping him. Corinth wasn't helping him. All these people he's pouring into his life, they're not helping him. And yet the church in Philippi does. Now, Paul could have been very discouraged and said, 
What am I doing? I only have one church helping me. But what does Paul see? He sees God's ultimate provision. He says, I have one church. That's all I need. I got the one, others will come because God is faithful. It's very easy for us in the midst of especially a very materialistic culture to see all that we do not have. But recognize, my friends, all that you do have. And rejoice in God's ultimate provision for you. I've gotten to go to Kenya several times to to lead missionary trips from our church over there. And I'm constantly struck by the ladies that we meet in their homes. And again, their, their homes are constructed out of tin, sometimes mud. And there's four or five people living in a place that's smaller than this lower stage right here. Single moms, disease, you name it. They're fighting every kind of of horror that you and I can imagine. And yet we walk into these places associated with the church that we partner with over there. And the first thing they say is, hello, my name is, I'm a Christian. And then they say, and I am blessed. And guys, I am overwhelmed when they say that to me. Because we go over there and our hearts break. How can they live in this way? How can they have a dirt floor? How can they cook over a, a, a fire pit and the, the smoke is just engulfing the air in this place? And we think about them having to use the bathrooms in weird places and not have toilets, western toilets, that kind of stuff. And we think about all the, the weirdness of what goes on over there. And all we can think is why, how, how blessed we are. Now we need to share that blessing with them and all they can see in themselves is how blessed they are. Hello, my name is, and I am a Christian and I am blessed. Right? What kind of perspective? They've been discipled well. They've been discipled as Paul was discipling the Philippian church. Don't focus on all that you don't have. Focus on how God has provided for you. And rejoice in that. You may lose me as your leader, as your apostle. I love you. You know that. But God will still provide. You haven't lost him. And remember, he's over this anyway. You still have the gospel. You still have the Lord. And finally, not only must we remember the glorious gospel and rejoice in God's ultimate provision, we must reject the fleeting pleasures of this world in order to stand firm. Chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brothers, that's where the therefore comes in, because the therefore is always there for a reason. I saw that from Stephen Trammell, so give him credit for that. Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. The fleeting pleasures of this world. 
Christianity demands sacrifice. Some have said that if Christianity has not cost you anything, you may want to re-examine your idea of Christianity. Now again, it doesn't cost us all the exact same thing. It's going to cost people in China today very different than what it may cost us today. But Christianity demands sacrifice. Its founding was the most incredible sacrificial event in all of human history when the God of heaven and earth enclosed himself in human flesh and gave his life for us. How can we praise God and then expect any less of ourselves than what he was willing to sacrifice for us? Paul's reminding them, listen, if you're in this Christianity thing for pleasure, for material things to fill your own belly, that's not going to last. Prosperity gospel does not work. You can't sell prosperity gospel in China. You can't sell prosperity gospel in Kenya. Because at the end of the day, all it's concerned about is you getting more things. And that is not what God is concerned about. You must understand that the single best thing that you can have in your life is Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain, Paul writes. To live is Christ. My whole life is given in devotion utterly to him. And if I do die, if my life is taken from me because of the way that I have lived, it's a gain. Because then I get to sit in the unadulterated presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. I don't need stuff. I need him. If he gives me stuff, praise be to God. I'll use it for his glory. If he doesn't, praise be to God. I'll use my negative circumstance to show how he ultimately satisfies in greater ways than anything this world offers me. In whatever circumstance, I choose to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. So some questions for thought as we close our time today. What does your reaction in the midst of negative or positive circumstances say about your faith in Lord. You don't get that job promotion. Your boss makes you stay the weekend because he didn't like the way you did something. What do you do? Do you immediately go behind his back and start gossiping about him and how terrible he is? Or do you say, you know what? I may have some quality time with another individual that needs to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do my best to work on this and I'm going to earn the right to speak to my boss's life and the people around me by the faithful work I do in honor of Jesus. That is close to home, huh? We talk about greater things. Diagnosed with cancer, losing a baby, house burning down, whatever it may be. How do you respond? How do you respond in positive times? Yeah, I got this. I deserved it. Be careful of those words. Be sure to give God the glory that he is due and don't take any for yourself. Secondly, how does the gospel encourage us to be steadfast in the Lord? When you get down when you get discouraged, when oppression comes toward you, 
when negative things come in your life, think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on those things. Write it on your bathroom mirrors. Keep an index card in your car to focus on heavenly things, things worthy of focus. Don't focus on the negative things. Focus on all that you do have as a result of Jesus. Train your mind. Renew your mind, Paul writes in Romans 12.1, to focus on good, heavenly things. Don't get caught up in all that you don't have. Focus on what you do have. And I promise you, your life will change. You want a life of rejoicing? This is the book of rejoicing, some say, because joy is so often mentioned in Philippians. You want a life of rejoicing? You focus on the Lord all the time. And what he's done for you, and I promise you, your heart will change. Your demeanor will change because you will be a person of thanksgiving. You can't talk about people bad when you're blessing them. And finally, what are you most afraid of losing because of Jesus? What is the thing that you are afraid of losing? That may be an idol in your life. I can't share with this person. I may lose my job. I don't want you to be unwise. I also don't want you to be fearful. I may lose my reputation. I may lose some friends if I'm honest about where I stand on certain things. If I shut down that conversation or I enter into this conversation. Small thing to lose for someone who forsook all. feel very somber right now, which should not be the case that we talked about Philippians, the book of joy. So just remember, Jesus Christ has pursued you. He sought you to rescue you. And my friends, in any circumstance, that should cause us to be joyful. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray you would take what we've done today, seal it up in our hearts, help us to be more like Jesus as a result of our encounter with your word. God, we love you and we thank you. In my name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.